Though it was certainly mentioned previously, it would not at all be a harmful thing to make mention again of the thankfulness that's able to fill our hearts in appreciation to God and His goodness for allowing us the privilege of meeting together today, the honor that's ours to understand the glory of His handiwork, not only physically but spiritually as well, to make the marvelous body known as the church that we can be part of it and therein entertain the hope of an eternal home in heaven. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24, that marvelous refrain there by the apostle is penned in which there shall come a time when the kingdom shall be handed over to the Father. Do we not all wish to be part of the kingdom on that occasion, understanding the marvelous home in heaven that awaits? As you might have noted in the bulletin, as well as in the wall here to my left, the title of the lesson this morning has to do with Pippin's account. As I made note of that title and made a selection of it, I recognize that there are many things that may race through your mind as you ponder what may he be speaking about today relative to Pippin's account. I will assure you it's not a bank account, although we may from time to time make reference to that to help us appreciate one of the statements made in the sacred text of the Word of God. By way of introduction, though, perhaps we might consider these thoughts that lead us into the lesson. There are many things in life that we in fact encounter or appreciate from one way or another that it does not have a limit to it. It's limitless in one way or another. Sometimes we employ the word infinite. At least that's true with regard to our students who sometimes will take a math class, sometimes a science class in which they encounter some quantity that in fact gets large enough it doesn't have any upper limit. And the teacher might well use the word infinite. And in fact, not only is it true in regard to subjects like science and math, but you and I know that even in the Word of God, there are instances and occasions in which we encounter something that does not have any bound to it, like the love of God. Like, for instance, the power of, his, of the character of His powerfulness. What do we read, in, in fact, in Jeremiah 32, 17? That there is no limit to God's power. Whatever his mind imagines, he is able to bring it about. With regard then to the attributes of God, that might be one way in which we can see this infinite character. Considering his understanding, didn't the psalmist remind us in Psalm 147 verse 5? His understanding is infinite. There's a direct usage of that word infinite. I might suggest to you though today that our study is not going to be with respect to God's power or with respect to His love. It'll be with respect to existence. Infinite existence. Eternal existence. As you ponder that with me, we shall look at it from the opportunity of seeing not only some ideas concerning it, but how that relates to Pippin's account. And so, with that journey before us, let me invite us to proceed on that way by first noting how often this idea occurs in the Bible. I have it there for your particular study. The word everlasting, or the word eternal, occurs 144 times in the King James Version of the Bible. That means that the topic is a frequent one. And that means also that you and I should take an interest to appreciate the thoroughness and the greatness associated with that idea. And that we shall do under the topic of eternity, but also under the topic of Pippin's account. With that said... Let me suggest three avenues that we shall take in this lesson. First is simply attempting to understand the definition of the word eternity, the definition of the word eternal, if you will. 
But then secondly, from there, we will look at the notion of a judgment. And finally, we will then be ready to look at Pippin's account. First of all, with regard to this definition, it is true that the Bible sometimes uses the word eternal, the word everlasting, with a bit of latitude. And by that I mean sometimes it has to do with some entity, some state of affairs that persists for a long time, but ultimately is not absolutely without bound from the perspective that you and I might use it. One clear example of that is in Genesis 17. There, when reference was made to circumcision and to the promise of land for Abraham's seed, God said the land is an everlasting possession. There are those we know in the world today who read into that and say, well, aha then, Israel, that physical nation of Israel is still God's holy land and the Jews by right have it according to the promise of God. There's only one problem with that particular interpretation. Later when we come to the book of Joshua, God there says, I have given you all the land you're going to get. That was it. Notice though the, the usage of the word everlasting in that Genesis 17 passage had to do with the fact that Jacob's descendants, Abraham's descendants through Jacob, would possess that land for a long time, but not from a perspective of infinity. There are, though, other instances where that word very clearly is used to refer to something that really never ceases. It really is infinite. It really is unlimited. I've listed some of the ways along the lines of this definition. By far the most common appreciation that you and I have about that is found in this Greek definition for the word everlasting, for the word eternal as it so often appears. It means without beginning and without end. That which always has been and always will be. That's one way in which the word can be used. Another way in which it can be used simply has reference to something that's without beginning. Another way that it can be used, the third definition I've listed, has to do with something that's without end. That which in fact never ceases to be and hence is everlasting. As one looks at that usage of the word, it's clear now that it's not just merely for a long while. It's not just for a lengthy period of time. It truly is a perpetual matter. Permanent, absolutely. It is this latter usage that so often finds itself presented by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the pages of the New Testament. I have listed a few of them for you and I to make use of. But just as we begin to approach them, might I quickly note the human mind has a difficult time comprehending eternity. I don't believe any of us would challenge that concept. The whole idea is, as humans, we seem to have an innate desire to quantify things. We want to attach a number to something so that we can understand it, so that we can rank it and categorize it, so that we can perhaps appreciate its association with other matters and with other things. And so we might talk about some object or entity and talk about its weight or refer to perhaps the dimensions of its length, its width, its height, or its volume. We're quantifying it. In fact, even this planet on which you and I walk, though it's exceedingly large, scientists have been able to determine what its mass is and what its volume is. But when we come to think about eternity,
something that's everlasting. We can't attach a number to it. No matter how big a number we pick, there's a bigger one still. We have a hard time mentally grasping that idea. In fact, large, large numbers are sometimes used in the daily walk of life. Our federal deficit now is about $2 trillion. That's a lot of money. You and I can't fathom how many dollar bills would it take to make a trillion. But yet, that's the quantity that's associated with our federal deficit currently. Might I suggest in regard to these kinds of numbers, look with me though that when the Bible uses the word infinite, or when it uses the word eternal, it didn't talk it about money. So often it has to do with life, existence. In Matthew 25, verse 46, the closing verse to that chapter, the very lips of our Savior uttered this expression and these ideas. He said, These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. The Lord made a direct reference to life that's eternal. Life that has no end. Life that is truly and absolutely permanent. Never, characterize, never, never a characteristic of change. Always in that formalism that one, is, that one has seen it. In John 3 verse 16, the inspired apostle of love affirmed, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. In Galatians 6, verse, verses 7 and 8, the inspired apostle Paul echoes the refrain on that occasion by uttering this. He says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. That's just three passages. Perhaps we could no doubt think of many others. Life everlasting. One of the things we certainly know about life here in the flesh is that if the Lord does not come back, we know you and I are going to die. That's an absolute matter, testified not only by experience, but also in the pages of the Word of God. But here the Lord speaks of life that never ends, life that is eternal. According to that definition we just noted earlier, life, numbers 2 and 3, especially number 3, Life that does not have an end. We all understand the great reward and the great discussion that is enunciated in the Bible with respect to that thing. But perhaps one other way to appreciate it is to note the contrast. Not only does the Bible speak about life that's eternal, it also speaks about punishment that's eternal or destruction that's eternal. That same passage we noted earlier, Matthew 25, 46, the first part of the verse again reads, These shall go away into everlasting punishment. That helps us identify that there is a contrast. On the one hand is eternal life. These others to which the Lord refers, their destiny is eternal punishment, everlasting destruction. Notice also in 2 Thessalonians 1, where again Paul echoes a similar sentiment. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. 
there were those in such a condition and in such a state that Paul there affirmed that they should be the recipients of the tremendous wrathful vengeance of the Savior because they didn't obey His gospel. And therein shall be the recipient of everlasting punishment. One of the things that's thus easy to appreciate is that these are vastly distinct in the sense of what one receives, but their duration is exactly the same. Those who shall receive everlasting life, what a marvelous joy and a blissful existence. But for those who are the recipients of everlasting punishment, words fail me to describe the agony to be received for an eternity. Punishment that never ends. Punishment never, that is in fact, lessened in its intensity, never is brought lower in what one, the agony that one in fact appreciates. All of that leads us to see that the next item in the lesson would then be to use those to move us in the direction of the judgment. What determines which of these eternalities that one receives? What determines whether it's everlasting life or eternal punishment? I might submit to you that the notion of giving an account or making a reckoning for opportunities or for privileges extended is not really a foreign concept to us. In fact, in schools, our youngsters are used to that pretty often. Maybe for a period of time, an instructor, a teacher, sets forth ideas on some topic, some theme, some chapter of material. But then the time comes that the youngster is responsible and accounting is given in the form of a test. How well have you learned this material? How have you used the opportunities to understand it, to comprehend it, and to apply it? That's only one way in which we understand, at least in some way, the formalism of making an accounting, the formalism of this matter, if you will, of a reckoning. But the Bible also speaks of one, and it's not any paper exam, if you please. It's not anything, in fact, that is that trivial. It's not anything whose consequences are that minor. I've listed some more thoughts for you to consider. And the idea is this. Your life and mine, in fact, in its entirety, is a time that will present a reckoning. You see, you and I each must give an accounting for the deeds done in the body. Randy, what have you done? Have you used the opportunities in your life to advantage? To fulfill the will that is the purpose and destiny of your life? Or have you shirked your duty? Have you done less than what your privileges would have allowed? Have you in fact turned a deaf ear and eye to that which God gave you by way of skill and talent to accomplish? And you can put your name in the blank as well. You see, life is not without its obligation. One of the greatest tragedies to imagine are those who meander their way through life from cradle to grave and think about living it up to the pleasures of the flesh, wholly oblivious to the fact that life is not without its obligation. There's coming a time I will give answer to what I did or what I didn't do. And there's coming a time when you too will give an answer to what you did or what you didn't do. That whole concept is a rather compelling one, isn't it? Can you imagine standing before the august presence of the God of heaven with the books opened and every thought and deed of life standing there open to be read? There's no way to hide from the facts of the case, for God will know it all. Everything that I thought, 
if it wasn't forgiven, if it's still on the testimony of God's books, it'll be brought to bear. How important and how vital it is then to appreciate there is coming an occasion of judgment. Over and over again, the Bible holds that thought before us so that we are never allowed to forget it. In Romans 14, verse number 12, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. In Romans 2, verse 6, We all, in terms of the deeds of the body, will give answer to the occasion of that day. In Revelation 22, 12, the last page of God's book, perhaps, we can see one last time we are reminded that the refrain can well be uttered, Behold, I come quickly. And my reward is to give to every man according as his work shall be. The reward that shall be extended will be in harmony with the work of my life. And the same will be true for you. The certainty of that occasion of judgment is only echoed in the words of Acts 17. As Paul stood magnificently on Mars Hill preaching there on that occasion to that idolater city of Athens, he finally reached this refrain in verses 30 and 31. He spoke about repentance in these words. The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day into which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. In essence, Paul's statement is this guarantee. God says, here is my guarantee that you will be judged. My son was raised from the dead. Just as surely as the Lord came forth that Lord's Day morning, Matthew 28, 6, you and I will be judged. The facts of the Lord's resurrection are beyond dispute. There were eyewitnesses of it. 1 Corinthians 15, Peter said, I saw him. Others affirmed that they had seen him. In exactly the same way, we can rest assured you and I shall be judged. We will stand before the presence of the God of heaven. I would submit to you then that the first thought of the lesson was that character of the definition of the word eternity. This thing, this matter that has no limit to it, it doesn't ever cease to be. The second part of the lesson, we've turned our attention to thinking about the character of the certainty of judgment. And it's that judgment that determines whether you and I shall receive eternal life or eternal punishment. In fact, in Revelation chapters 20 and 21 and 22, we see one last vivid reflection of that judgment. We see the dragon, the beasts, and all of those who are their followers cast into a lake burning with fire and brimstone. On the other hand, we see the glorious city of God that in fact is described in ways where there's no death, no pain, no tears, no crying. The curse of death completely is there no more. Revelation 22, 3. The distinction between them is so dramatic. Notice again how that you and I thus, by the way that we live, are choosing which one we shall inhabit. Which one will be our destiny? Which one will be our eternal, everlasting place of abode? We are reminded one other occasion in Luke 16 that once the sentence of the place is made, there is no changing the abode. Wasn't it true that that rich man desired Lazarus to cool my tongue by dipping his fingers in water. But we did notice along the course of that discussion that there's a great gulf fixed. There's no transmission, no transport, if you please, from one side to the other. This particular place 
is in fact one where our sentence is final. There will be no court of appeals. In our land, we're often aware that when a judicial sentence is given, things can be dragged out in court for years by way of appeal. God is the final arbiter. No court of appeals. Once the sentence is made, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth by those who have heard their sentence of eternal punishment. But those who are granted the opportunity to enter into life everlasting, they will in fact be able to enjoy a place of blissful rest. Revelation 14, 13 reminded us in these words, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. With those two ideas in mind, might I move us to the last segment of the lesson this morning, more carefully relating, in fact, to the character of Pippin's account. It is interesting, as you notice some of the statements that I've made there entitled Account and Judgment. I think on the whole, we're rather comfortable with the concept of an account, especially a bank account. We think about having an account where we make deposits into it. But then when the appropriate time comes that we wish to purchase something or make some other decision in life, we can withdraw from that account. That idea seems, in a way, rather comfortable to us. But note with me some of the things that can be said about that concept of an account. When that account has funds in it and when deposits are made into it, if we try to withdraw more than what is in it, the bank has a problem with that. And in fact, they may, assist, uh, they may put fees upon our account and ultimately if the situation is bad enough, they may in fact take over that account. At the very least, we can get into significant problems if we attempt to withdraw more than what has been deposited. I might ask you to ponder, though, that that's an interesting idea. Because the Bible speaks of an account as well, but it's not a physical account. It's not a bank account. It's a spiritual account. Revisit with me Philippians 4 verse 17, if you would, and notice how the word account is there utilized. As Brother Jason read that before in the reading this morning, you might notice that the very last word in that, in that verse is the word account. And here is the context in which it appears. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Paul makes a, a statement, and a rather clear one at that that as he wrote to the Philippian congregation, he complimented them highly because of the benevolent activity that they had extended in his direction. Paul had labored abundantly far from home in an attempt to spread the good news of the gospel. In his efforts to bring the gospel to the Gentile nation, he had traveled far and wide in the Roman Empire. He even made allusion in this very chapter. If you wish to notice verse number 14, Notwithstanding, ye have done well that ye did communicate with my affliction. The Philippian church had sent support to Paul. And he was so thankful for that support that they had extended. In a way, it's a similar situation that you and I at the church here send support to preachers in India or to preachers in other places scattered around this country and otherwise. But notice in verse 15 he says, now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me 
as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. No other church, at least at the outset, supported Paul. No wonder he was so thankful for the church in Philippi. No wonder he was so strongly attracted and had a strong bond of love and consideration with these brethren. For they had supported his work as a missionary in the proclamation of truth. It is in that context we notice in verse 17 he says, Not because I desire a gift. I don't want your funds and your money just so that I can wear better clothing and just so that I can perhaps convey myself more naturally and more powerfully from one place to another. That's not why I want it. He says, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Philippi, you've got an account. And in your loving, genuine support to me, you are making deposits into your spiritual account. That's why I want you to support me. It's in the evangelistic work of spreading the gospel. You have an account, brethren, and I want to ensure that you have appropriate deposits made into it so that on the judgment day, when the withdrawal is made for determination of reward, your reward will be the one that you want. I think now you can probably see why I entitled the lesson the way that I did. Because in a moment we're going to ask, what about Pippin's account? How does it stand? But as we move toward the direction of asking that question, might I ask us to notice, not all the churches in the New Testament had the kind of account, balance, that Philippi did. There were churches that had a powerful and good positive balance, but there were others that had a sadly and tragically negative balance, it would seem. I've listed just a quick consideration for you. I've listed this church in Philippi that seemed to have a lovely positive balance. They were a hard-working evangelistic church, and inasmuch as we read in the book of Philippians, we find that they were doing many things for the cause of Christ, and much labor had been accomplished for the good of God by them. But what about the church in Antioch? In Acts chapters 11 through 21, we read of a congregation who sponsored Paul at least they were the hosting congregation for the evangelistic missionary journeys. They were the church that, in fact, was supported by Jerusalem. Many good things by way of evangelism seems to have been accomplished, as well as in benevolence by the church at Antioch. But what about the church at Philadelphia? In Revelation chapter 3, we read of a congregation that the Lord himself did not censure. He had no negative thing to say about them. He simply said, I've opened a door of opportunity and no man can close it. This church, though they appear to have been small in number, was strong in spirit, powerful in might, because they had a heart desirous of following the things of God. Those three congregations appear to have had a wonderfully positive balance. For others, the same thing cannot be said. What about the church in Sardis in Revelation 3? Here was a church who had a name that they lived, but Jesus said, you're dead. You're dead. And he said, furthermore, if you don't repent, I'm going to come and remove even that which you do have. Notice it would appear that Sardis was in a difficult situation. I would su submit to you that most of the individuals in that congregation, it seems, were such that their account was in the red. What about the church at Laodicea? Here was a church who was rich from a physical perspective. But the Lord directly said to them, You're not hot, you're not cold, you make me sick. 
I'll spew you out of my mouth. Do you suppose that they were also in the red? I think so. What about other congregations like the church at Thyatira? Here was a church that Jesus, through the apostle John, directly said, you tolerate a Jezebel amongst you. She encourages fornication, and she teaches other things not in accordance to the truth, and you let it happen. Do you suppose they were also spiritually in the red? I think it would highly seem so, don't you? As one looks at the various nature of these churches, now the question, what about the Pippin Church of Christ? What about our account, our spiritual account? I have no interest at this point in thinking about our bank account up here in Cookville. That's not what Paul referred to. What about our spiritual account? Are we strongly in the black, living day by day in the power of God's covenant, word of the gospel, striving to do that which is will? Or are we in the red? Are we failing beneath the privileges that God has given us? Are we living beneath the dignity of the gospel and what it demands? That's a question that we need to wrestle with. It's a question we honestly need to answer. It's a question that will determine our eternal destiny. How do we answer it? Where do we look for the evidence? What do we find as we appreciate what must be done to make deposits into that account? Friend, it stands clear, doesn't it, that if there's an account, Philippi had one, Pippin's got one, but notice that a church is nothing more than a congregation of individuals. People who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7, 14. Individuals who have relinquished their life to the control of the Master. And so in a way, when one speaks about a spiritual account for the church at Philippi or for the church at Pippin, really that means what about my account and what about yours? You see, I have an account, and on the day of judgment, I'll find out what its balance is. If it's in the red, I'm in trouble. In fact, if it is not positively the way that God would require and demand it to be, I have only eternal punishment to look forward to, if one wishes to state it that way. But on the other hand, if I have done that which I was able to do with the talents and skills that God gave me, be they many or be they few, then I can understand the precious honor and privilege of being the one who will hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things, Luke 19, verses 1 and following. That concept then leads me to notice the New Testament describes the works of the church, which are works that each of us can participate in. Works like evangelism, helping to spread the good news of the gospel. Our Lord stated in Mark 16, verse 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Our earnest desire then to assist others to believe, to come to obey. We have a gospel meeting coming up shortly. An opportunity when Brother Ben Flat will be with us to share the good news of the truth. May we labor in efforts to help others come and be a part of the the audience on those occasions, so that they can hear the words of truth. May we certainly require ourselves to be here, for I need reminding, and each of us do as well. Notice thus the imperative need of ensuring that deposits are made into that spiritual account. Isn't it amazing how that sometimes emphasis can be so often laid on a, on a physical account up here at a local bank? 
Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where is your treasure? Are we making deposits into the spiritual account in heaven? Oh, how we need to be doing so frequently, often, regularly, as we involve the works that God has commanded in our life. Besides that, notice benevolence. Paul specifically complimented the Philippian church because of their benevolent activity toward him. Thankfully, here at Pippin, our elders make decisions to benevolently act toward those in need physically. They may be here locally. They may be halfway around the world. But notice that God requires that we have that spirit of assistance. When we do that with a proper attitude, we're making deposits into our spiritual account. Lastly, what about edification? Are you a person known for encouraging others? When their walk with the Lord becomes challenging or difficult, are you there with a smile, with some kind of aid, perhaps a Bible verse to assist them on their way? Sometimes we think, I can't do anything. I just am not given that skill. Friend, there's something we all can do. In Matthew chapter 10, in fact, even giving a cup of cold water in the name of the Savior will not go unrewarded. Matthew 10, verses 38 to 42. You see, there's always something that I can do, something you can do, in the assistance of making deposits into our spiritual account. Near the close of that sheet, I ask you to notice two passages in the New Testament that I find exceedingly interesting as it relates to this subject. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul there, after making the statement that by grace you're saved through faith, not of works lest any man should boast, not of ourselves it is the gift of God. He then made this affirmation in verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You and I have been called Christians, made that way for the purpose of good works. And a similar statement is found in Titus 2 verse 14. As we draw near this particular lesson to its conclusion, might I ask each of us then to seriously and honestly and sincerely ask, what about my account and what about your account? You do have one and so do I. Where does it stand? If it's in the red, make a change at once. But if it's strong and positive in the black, with regular, frequent, and wonderful deposits made, keep up that good work. Not as though you personally are meritorious of those matters, but because of God's graciousness and love, He will reward you with eternal life. At this point, perhaps your spiritual account is absolutely so far in the negative because you've never even become a Christian. You've never even started making positive deposits into it. Today, that could be changed. The baptismal waters behind me are warm and ready. Everything is prepared. You could be immersed into Christ in a matter of moments. Prior to that, you, of course, need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and then you are a candidate for scriptural baptism. We could make sure that's accomplished so very quickly, and what an honorable and lovely thing for you it would be. But if you have become a Christian, but have not lived faithfully to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3.14, 
then make a change. For apparently you at one time were making positive deposits, but now the withdrawals are exceeding the deposits. Make a change. Come back to your first love. If we could do that by praying for the forgiveness of the sins in your life, we'd be honored to do that. If in either, in either of these ways we can be of assistance to you, will you not let it be known in haste while together we stand and while we sing?